we had less than two weeks, I think, to put together the brand, the the label, our product position, our message. And, you know, what we messaged and how we messaged it in the beginning is so different than what we do today. And we continuously change that as we learn. Welcome back to another episode. If you're new here, I'm your host, Rebecca Walcott. Visionaries dives into the stories behind the most successful disruptors, change makers, activists, entrepreneurs, you name it. It'll leave you inspired and enlightened to be your own visionary. This episode features Dinah Trout, who is the CEO and co-founder of Health Aid Kombucha. If you're not familiar with the bubbly brew, kombucha is a fermented tea packed with healthy acids and probiotics, most notably known for their benefit on gut health. Now, in 2020, HealthAid sold more than 4 million cases, surpassing 200 million in retail sales. It's tracking well towards being a billion dollar a year business. And in this episode, we get to hear firsthand from Dinah on how the challenges, successes, and milestones that HealthAid went through got it to where it is now and how you can apply that to your own career or business. So let's get started. We ended up landing on kombucha sort of in a roundabout way, I um, I had been making kombucha for a good 15 years at that point. I learned how to make it back in graduate school. I went to graduate school for nutrition. And, you know, I was the type of nutritionist that was really into holistic, uh, you know, healing and how foods can heal. So naturally I, you know, cooked a lot. I fermented things. I seeded things. I sprouted things. And I, I found com- my way to kombucha there. And I made really good kombucha, but I didn't know, of course, it would be my identity a decade later. <laughs> you know, so fast forward to this time that Justin, Vanessa, and I wanted to start a business. Kombucha was sort of something we were sipping on when coming up with the ideas. My, my kombucha. Of course, that was all- going to be one of my points. Yeah, it's <laughs> funny because you're seeing you're coming up, up with all these different ideas like for the party, for the uh, yeah. also leading on to, of course, the hair loss. But it's funny how it was always in the picture, but it was just never a thought. Yeah, it was a very, like I said, roundabout sort of way. And I think even when we chose to start selling kombucha, which we did in the farmer's markets, um, and we did that because we really didn't have any money and no real idea how we were going to break into the beverage world, um, having had, you know, no money, no experience, no people, no distribution, you know, it was sort of just like, okay, we're going to start here. You know, looking back, I'm like, that was the perfect place to start because it took very little overhead to do that. A lot of work for sure, but we had that to give. So it was all very sort of accessible to us and it allowed us to grow the business step-by-step, even though it grew very fast from there, it allowed us to grow it sort of organically like that. So we could, we could invest more each week, each week invest more and never be in a situation where we couldn't. Of course, we needed help along the way through people and through investors eventually. But yeah, it was a pretty awesome beginning and, you know, sort of an unlikely one, I guess, because I don't think any of us thought we were going to start a beverage company. (laughs) 
No, exactly. And it's incredibly successful. But I wanted to talk specifically about that farmer's market moment because you had this idea at your club that you would do, you said your husband is dealing with what could possibly be, you know, some hair loss. And, and you're thinking you can use the scoby from kombucha to make some sort of mask for his hair. But you never actually went on to making that mask. You just decided to do the kombucha and you didn't have a fleshed out um, brand at the time. You had, a, you, you had a very great product, but not a fleshed out brand, but you still went for it. You still went to that farmer's market and sold out within an hour. So can you yeah. touch on the importance of just running with an idea if you believe in it? Because I don't ever think there's an exact perfect time to start. There's always a bunch of things you want to fix. Yeah. I mean, it's probably the biggest takeaway from this whole business is, and it's a repeated one. It didn't just happen at the beginning. I'm constantly reminded of this, that the game is played out there and everything you're doing inside, it's just practice. And while it is important to practice, you have to really balance um, the amount you're investing in getting something perfect and getting something right with the learnings you're going to get from out there in the real world. And my thought is that what you get out in the real world, it, nothing can replicate that. It is the real market. And so your best lessons are gonna be learned there. The best um, information is gonna be from there, not from any research you could possibly invest in. So I do find a lot of entrepreneurs get stuck in this sort of beginning phase of trying to get their product and, and brand just right for market. And I just think that has to be balanced with an understanding that everything you need to learn is out there. So the sooner you get out there in some respects, the better, because what you learn, you can then, um, you know, implement and then continuously improve. So, yeah, I mean, the farmer's market was such a great space for that. Well, first, even just entering the market, you're right. We had less than two weeks, I think, to put together the brand the the label our product position our message and you know what we messaged and how we messaged it in the beginning is so different than what we do today and we continuously change that as we learn and you know it worked i think part of it is certainly luck maybe we landed in a good place from the get-go but even if you don't and i remember even some examples of things we said that clearly didn't land you know and it was like by the following week we just knew not to say those things or things that did land. And by the next week, we knew to always say those things. Again, nothing that research could have ever told me, I think. Um, nothing I would have intu intuitively known. Um, so yeah, I'm a very big believer of, you know, that sort of Nike tagline, just do it. Because I know I you mentioned that in a podcast too. And I think it's, it's a, it's a simple way because even Nike started off small and look at where they are now. So it's like, you got to just, like you said, just do it. You got to just do it. It doesn't have to be perfect. It's not going to be perfect. Um, and, you know, you can always take steps forward to improve. So, yeah, I'm a big believer in um, not putting too much time or pressure on getting it right the first time. I know in a podcast, you mentioned that investors are not your friends. So can you tell me a little bit more of the point at which you realize, okay, crap, I need to get investors because you had such a high demand, but you really needed capital. Yeah. And let me clarify by saying investors are not your friends is not the same thing as saying investors are your enemies. It, it's, it's basically just saying they're not your friends. Friends love you for you and they're going to do 
um, you know, they care about your heart and your feelings and, you know, they'll go the extra distance for you. That's what a friend and family member does. And you can find yourself in a business, especially, you know, as an entrepreneur in the beginning stages, for sure, you can find yourself um, sort of thinking these people are your friends because you love your business with your heart. It is not only a financial thing, probably. It's something you're passionate about. It's kind of your baby. So, when other people are invested in your baby and you and they sort of look like they're helping you along with it, you start to think of them as a family or friend. It's very easy to get caught up in that yeah. um, sort of mental space of being like, oh, we're in this together. And it's a very important, um, it's very important to decouple that. They're not, they're not in love with your baby. I mean, they are in so far as it will make them money. But there may be a time and there will come a time where your desire will conflict with their desire for the business. And you're going to have to come to terms with the realization that they're not there for you. They're there for the business success. And I had to learn through a very dark sort of, I I like to call it my moments of swampy. uh, It's a swamp of, wait, what do I say? It's a messy swamp of despair. Is, is the time that I feel like you go into sometimes in business and every entrepreneur understands that there's the high moments, but there are those very down moments. So this was a down moment, an example of a down moment where I had to learn that they were never, it was incorrect for me to expect them to go along with my desires for the business necessarily. And it is not betrayal because it had nothing to do with that in the first place. It's more about correct expectations of who investors are. And the the faster you can understand they're not your friends. Yes, they're your partners in business, but they have a different end in mind. And, you know, don't get so emotionally distraught when they disagree because that's, it has nothing to do with you personally. No, exactly. I I had a very similar conversation with Beatrice who was telling you about where she sort of also dealt with um, investors, but as a black woman, she was only one of 40 at the time to get a million dollars in funding. What Beatrice mentioned when she said, if you give them a dollar, they're expecting 10. And it's not like she has any hard feelings about it. That's just what it is when you're working with investors. But her end goal was she wants to actually sell her company. And she's been very clear about that. And it also deals with, you know, generational wealth and being able to be financially free. And she has come to terms with that with herself and said, this is what I want. Now that you have investments and it's taken off so much, your sales are like 200, what's 200 million a year. Have you said, okay, it's at the exact place that I think it should be. I think I will eventually sell. Where, where do you stand as of right now? You know, it's a complex, um, it's a complex answer. So first I'll tell you where it started. When it started, I had really two or three goals, I would say. Looking back, they're a lot clearer. I think then um, I wasn't as clear on this, but um, for sure, a part of it was financial, a big part of it. I did not want to be living paycheck to paycheck anymore. And that's how we were living. It was like I would wake up in the morning and go to bed at night being like, I want freedom from this. It like it couldn't I couldn't describe it any other way except that I needed to have financial freedom and I wanted to have a life where I could do whatever I wanted. Um, And for me, it wasn't about flash 
airplanes and cars. It was just about, about freedom to live the life I wanted. And I knew that it was going to take great effort to acquire that type of wealth. Um, and I even had grand visions of like, not, not working when I'm 50 and being able to travel the world with my family. You know, these are, um, sort of things I think I realized maybe unclearly at the time, but now I look back and I'm like, no, absolutely. Finance finances were a part of it. So for sure, acquiring wealth for my family, um, and really financial freedom, um, was a huge goal and still is. Um, and I think I did have to get comfortable with that overall. I don't think if you asked me at the beginning what my goals were, I would have even been able to articulate that. I think it was very subconscious and I was ashamed of it because money is bad, you know? Um, but actually it's not bad, you know? And now of course I've become very comfortable with talking about money, wanting money, sharing with others, how you can get more money. Obviously it's hard work and it doesn't just come. Um, but I think the, the sooner that women in particular can get comfortable with, you know, that the better, because then there's just going to be one less step in the way, um, of getting it. <laughs> and if it's going to be money that gets you the things and the experiences that make you happy, then we should get everything out of the way so you can be happy. Right. It's like, um, a really simple thing, but now of course I've had the luxury of eight years to, to sort of get through those, those things. So yeah, that's one of the goals. Another goal I had back then was, was proving I could do it. You know, I think, um, you know, I kind of, I don't know if it was an internal thing or an external thing or a combination, but for whatever reason, I felt I had something to prove. I had to prove that I could build this business and I feel the same way with myself too. It's like, I do all these things, even the podcasts. I'm like, it's sort of like, I want to prove that I can be in a zoom call with you of all people. Like for yeah. us to connect is one of those things that is like, I want to prove that I can have a conversation and ask you questions that I want to know. And I think it's also a personality sort of thing too, where you are constantly challenging yourself. And that's something that I think is remarkable because most people may not see that far for themselves, you know? Hmm. Yeah. And that changes, of course, too, right? Because at first, my, my sort of goal was to prove that I could, you know, make enough money just like, I, I mean, at first, it was like, I could prove that I could just make enough money to live through this business. Another, another proof point for me was being able to hire my first employee. So of course, once we met that goal, then the goal changes. But having something to prove has been something and I don't know, again, if it's proving it to others or proving it to myself, I don't know, but I have this drive every day to like prove I can do it. So I think that's just a part of my personality is I'm a little bit of that like rebel that has to, you know, you tell me I can't do something that's going to make me want to do it. And so if somebody says like, oh, like women are, you know, only 2%, only 2% of funds, you know, from private equity or given to women, I'm like, I'm going to be one of those 2%. Watch me. You know, that's Absolutely. just what drives me. So that's a real driving factor for me. And it continues, even though the goal shifts, it's that drive. And then, you know, for the business itself, I have goals as well. And those, those goals um, are what bring me to work every day. You know, I mean, it's like, there's so much to do um, to achieve what we want to achieve. You know, I don't go into the year thinking, let's see how this year is going to go. 
um, I'm very clear on what we're trying to, what targets we're trying to hit, how much we're trying to grow. And they're always extraordinary goals. So there's a lot to do. And so I think I am driven by that too. Like, I don't think I could ever be somebody who's retired in truth, even though, trust me, I want to break sometimes because I'm driven by work a little bit. Like I'm not a workaholic, but I do find myself to always work hard at whatever I want to achieve. So, um, yeah, I think for the business, I have a lot of goals and that's what kind of keeps me going every day. So it's, there's a lot of goals there, but for sure, financial wealth, um, is like a a, a part of it. So the question really was, do you want to sell the business? And you know, that part isn't as clear to me because I want both what's best for me and the business. And those might perfectly coincide. Um, I could see how they would. So let's take the example of selling the business to a business like Coca-Cola or something like that. I could make financial wealth that way, right? Personally, great. There's one checkbox. And they could also offer some great value for the business for it to succeed as well. Um, So for example, they have great distribution, access to accounts worldwide, really good teams that could help add value in ways that like it would take me years and years and years to build. Right. So you could see how those two could coincide. The other thing is, I think when people think about selling a business, um, a lot of times people assume that the CEO exits or the founder exits. But that really actually is rarely the case now, at least in beverage. Um, It's actually part of the deal (laughs) that the founder stays on for a number of years to help execute that vision. And there's plenty of examples where you might not even know that business is owned by Coke um, because the business does such a good job running itself. Um, an example of that would be like Honest Tea, um, you know, where the f- original founder of Honest Tea didn't even step down, I, I think, until a good decade after Coca-Cola. Really? Yeah. Wow. So, you know, it was his business and his company and his people. And I think if you asked his people, they would have told you it was, you know, no different. So I think there's a lot of assumptions and they're not always correct about what a sale could mean for the people in the business. Um, And I think I would likely be one of those CEOs, at least at this point, because I still feel I have so much to do with the business. Um, So yeah, but then, you know, you could see a totally other route for the business, like let's say going public, you know, let's say the business gets strong enough from a profit standpoint and from a growth standpoint that it could weather the public market I, I could see that also a way that both personally and for the company it could succeed. So I guess the long answer is I don't have the exact outcome figured out, but for me, both the company welfare and personal welfare would be important uh, things to sort of say yes to. And then also recognizing there's other stakeholders at the table, it's not just me. halfway through a couple of questions to get to know you better are you ready ready so what's one weird fact about you that most people don't know I think people probably don't know I speak Lithuanian and that the Lithuanian culture was a big part of my upbringing I uh, went to like my first language was Lithuanian and I polka danced my whole life and um, (laughs) that that's like a really big part of my culture uh, and sort of value system. And yeah, if you ever saw on the bottle of 
health aid kombucha, there's a little figure on the upper left hand yeah. label. It's like, it looks like a guy on a horse. That's actually a Lithuanian symbol called the Vitis. And it stands for, I guess the best way to translate it would be victory. I and mean, it represents a really great rebel warrior um, who eventually became a king in Lithuania. Um, but, you know, kind of fought off the bad forces and represented the country. Anyway, it was sort of a, an underdog figure for me that really represented not just our story, but a little bit me, you know, like it sort of aligned with the, the values that I feel I connect with. So yeah, Lithuanian is probably something people don't know about me, but it's a huge part of my life. That's amazing. And mm. if you could switch lives with one person for a day, who would it be? Mm, that's a great question. Dead or alive? First, I was going to say Elon Musk because... Oh, he's epic. Yeah. Yeah. I think it would be really cool to... I would just learn a lot. I think it would be really cool to connect with um, just what it must be like first to be in a, in a public market like that with so much scrutiny, so much expectation. I think I would be curious what that feels like. Um, and then, you know, just to you know, understand, I don't know, a little bit about his brain, you know, being so innovation focused, like that's something I want for myself a little bit. Like I want to get more comfortable with innovating and, and doing super futuristic things that people say you can't do. Um, that's a part of my brain. And I don't know if it's a confidence thing or a competence thing, but like, I, and, and really admire that in him. And I'd love to take some pointers on like how to start that type of journey. And so I don't know, that's where my brain went first. What I also appreciate about people is authenticity. And if it's one thing, he's always authentic, which mm -hmm. I think is what ma makes people love him even more. Okay. So final question, what's one app on your phone that you can't live without? Besides my texting and email app. I mean, good Lord, probably Amazon. <laughs> God, I'm so, I'm so embarrassed <laughs> to say it's Amazon. It's probably Amazon or no, you know, a more interesting one, probably Spotify. Thank goodness for Spotify. Let's use that one. That's a yeah. good one. Yeah. I mean, just music to me is another outlet listening to music really loud. I always feel like headphones are not freaking loud enough. Does anybody else feel like that? I put it on yeah. blast and I'm like, still not loud enough. I want it to just take over my body, you know, like, like a, like a waterfall, just loud <laughs> music. And sometimes I'm into soft acoustic, but it's still gotta be loud. And sometimes I'm for <laughs> hardcore rap and that's gotta be loud too. So, um, so yeah, I would say thank goodness for Spotify. I can find any song in the world, you know, I want. And um, it's just tap a finger away. Okay, so now let's get right back into it. You have had incredible sales. So in the past eight years, and I'm sure these statistics are changed, you guys have sold over 100,000 bottles of kombucha every day and done more than 200 million in retail sales in 2019. So can you talk to me about 
how health aids product offering would outlive some of your other competitors, especially during the pandemic. I know this is open-winded in the sense that there have been so many challenges you guys have faced, but in terms of your actual product offering, the quality is just so great. So do you think that's one of the major factors that has allowed you guys to continue to grow and outlive other competitors? Yeah, I think so. I think it's probably quality and taste. I mean, I, it's, you know, I think it's those two things that bring people back and, and in quality, it's, it's probably more about how it makes them feel. Um, we put a lot into making our kombucha awesome and, um, it's definitely premium and it's not, we don't skip any corners. Um, it's much more expensive to make the kombucha we make uh, the way we make it. Um, and so the consumers who buy it, I think, um, care about that. Um, but ultimately just like we had the conversation before what's in it for them. Well, when kombucha, when consumers buy kombucha, hopefully they're looking for, um, function, you know, they're looking for what makes me feel good. What's good for my gut. And I think the higher quality kombucha you buy and the brand or the company that puts the most sort of thought into what's in the kombucha, does it have a high amount of probiotics? Does it have a high amount of these, um, organic acids like acetic, lactic, gluconic. These are acids that help your organs and gut health overall. And, you know, our kombucha, not surprisingly has like the, the most variety of, um, of these things. And that's why it tastes the best too, I think. So all these things coincide and it makes it a little bit more expensive, but for sure, I think you see the difference when you taste it and when you drink it. So I would say those two things. And then, you know, if, if brand has anything to do with it, I think um, maybe people also like our brand and our brand message and our impact on the world. You know, there's like that social side of it too. Um, so our brand is very sort of uh, bold and bubbly and we like to support um, the entrepreneurial spirit. We support the hustle. We support the individual. Like we recognize that you have the power to be whatever you want to be. And that takes real work and persistence to achieve. And so you have to engage in like healthy practices and things that make you happy in life to get there. And we, we think kombucha is one small step of that, but we're like honored to play that role. So I think from a brand perspective too, it's important, you know, it's the reason you buy a Nike shoe perhaps versus something else, but you, there's something inspirational about connecting with a brand in that regard. And we, we hope to be that type of brand. And if we're not today yet, we, we plan to be. I want to know, is there something that people have never asked you that could be completely aside from healthy that you've always wanted to talk about, something about your story or your business or just yourself that you wanted to share with the world? You know, I think the first thing that's coming to mind, and it's not maybe very eloquent when I say it out loud, I, I often think sort of out loud. So here I go. Um, <laughs> you know, I think... Um, we're all finding ourselves in this space or a lot of people are finding ourselves in this space of just like so much work. Um, and, and I don't think it's just me. Uh, it's certainly an experience I'm having, not just work for our business or for our careers, but 
work at home and work on ourselves that we want to do and, you know, work with parenting if you have kids. And it just can become so much that all you're doing is working. And then you find yourself in your, you know, whatever, I'm in my late thirties and I'm just kind of like, what makes me like, where is the joy in all of this? And like, somebody asked me like, what's, what's your hobby? Or you know what it was? I was reading something I wrote like 10 years ago for something. And it said, you know, besides running this business, I love to, and I had all these lists of things that I do. And I'm sort of like, wow, I don't do any of those anymore. (laughs) That's kind of sad. You know, what is my hobby now? Um, Do I have time for a hobby? And that sort of is a depressing sort of thought, but it's an important, anyway, so out of that, I started to say, well, I'm going to start doing some things that bring me just strictly joy or at least exploring, would they give me joy things from the past? So I took up like an art class as an example, and now I'm starting to play guitar and it turns out guitar is now sort of the thing I look forward to every day. And even if I can only play it for 10 minutes, um, I play it. So it's not so much, um, that I would want to talk about how much I love guitar, but what I, what I do want to make sure there's, I, I do want to make sure there's conversation for people um, around this, because I think it's a very important thing that we don't all fall into a space of too much work. Um, and that like, you know, the point of life is at least in part to have joy and to just like enjoy it. And so again, I, I don't know why my brain went there, but I do think We often spend time about success and accomplishments and even the difficult work it took to get there. But I think it is also important to talk about um, the sort of downs, not the downside of too much work, but the importance of carving out time, not just for yourself, but for joy. And um, I would love to talk about that journey because it's been a very sort of like, undercover one, I guess. And uh, one I'm only really just starting to realize has been very important this whole time and maybe a little bit too absent. Thanks for tuning in to another great episode. If you haven't yet, hit that subscribe button and you can follow my career services platform at The Connect Vote on Instagram and you can follow me at rwalcottxx. I wanted to extend another note of thanks to Dinah for coming on. I really, really enjoyed this conversation and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. You can also help support this podcast by going to the anchor.fm link in the description. Next week's episode features Nadia Okamoto. Nadia is a 22-year-old Harvard student, and in early 2020, Okamoto co-founded August, a lifestyle brand working to reimagine periods. Nadia is also the founder of Period.org, an organization fighting to end period poverty and stigma that she founded at age 16. Under her leadership as executive director for five years, Period addressed over 1.5 million periods and registered over 800 campus chapters in all 50 states and 50 other countries. So stay tuned for that episode and see you next time.